Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Cavalry Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, February 9th, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, and what are we talking about this week? Over the last week or so, a bunch of names from the lore of cancel culture all popped up simultaneously. Dave Chappelle, Louis C.K., Salman Rushdie, and Army Hammer of all people. So I think it was a good point to discuss some of the implications of that and some of the storylines that have popped up around those people reappearing. So we'll talk about that in a few. Also, a couple really interesting pieces on identitarianism. One by Thomas Chatterton Williams, another by Andrew Sullivan, and their pieces and you know the events that that we've recently analyzed there, including a couple shootings in the Asian community, uh, the beating of Tyree Nichols and death of Tyree Nichols. Um, so some interesting pieces that I think were worth analyzing, which we will also discuss in a few. Also, uh, I will be interviewing a gentleman named Roy Price. Roy was a pioneer in the film business in terms of the transition from theatrical to streaming. He was the first uh, employee at Amazon Video, the head of Amazon Studios, uh, uh, nominated, I think, for 12 Emmys or Golden Globes for Best Series or actually won those for series that he's developed and in understanding the shift in the entertainment world, the shift in the media world from uh, traditional modes of distribution to the streaming world. No one is more insightful than Roy. He's got an incredible substack where he's discussing all these issues. So I'll be interviewing him and that may not come up uh, on this episode directly. I might release it as an adjunct recording. So may- make sure you check out the Roy Price interview. Um, but first, what do we got? We've got the State of the Union. Joe Biden delivered it two nights ago and while these things are usually pretty boring and pretty substance free I think it was this is a good time to kind of check in on American political p- political economy um, because the first two years of the Biden administration were lost a little bit in one the fog of the pandemic and two the fog of the end of the, the Trump era and then we have kind of this break we have the midterm elections in 2022 and it feels like we've now entered a new era so I think this is a good seminal moment in this new era to see where it starts and where we're going from here um, so with Joe Biden like I said this is mostly the state of the union is mostly stylistic they're kind of low on substance but i think that there's a it showed a really weird dynamic uh that's at play right now that's been at play with joe biden for quite a while and you know sometimes people use the term the bigotry of low expectations and that the expectations of joe biden because everybody knows him to be an elderly feeble borderline senile individual are so low that he's continually benefited from having those low expectations and then somewhat exceeding them that's what happened during the 20 election cycle where, you know, everyone was like, wait a second, this guy's past his prime. He's stumbling over his words. Yet he performed somewhat admirably, adequately at the debates. I mean, Donald Trump told everyone he he was going to be this drooling idiot and pretty much senile and wearing a diaper. And then Joe Biden turned out to be, you know, not particularly sharp, but adequate. And he benefited a lot from those low expectations. And the same thing seems to be happening with him as president and for things like the State of the Union, where everyone's sitting there, you know, expecting him to just 
essentially dissolve and melt down right there on stage. And while he stumbles a bit and while it's kind of ridiculous to look at this from an outsider's perspective and say, wait a second, this is the most powerful person on earth. This is the leader of the United States. This is the best we could come up with. A guy who is slurring his speech, clearly not, you know, has, has a low level of mental acuity yet because we all have such low expectations of him, the fact that he makes it through the speech, he ends up looking kind of good. Also, he's been able to maintain this kind of aw shucks, folksy attitude that anyone who's a keen observer knows is BS. But, you know, it's, it's what he's relied his entire political career on, that he's, you know, just good old, good old Uncle Joe and can relate to the common man and has this kind of goofy, folksy rhythm and rapport to him. And he is able to maintain that. And for better or for worse, that does benefit him. There were a lot of positive of reactions to the State of the Union address last night stylistically. Um, if we're even even going to give him some credit, uh, one person who is from the conservative side who gave him some credit is a guy named Jeff Blahar. Um, he's a conservative pundit. He writes for the National Review. Uh, the way that he put it was that you know the Biden speech was an aesthetic. Uh, it was an aesthetic win. Mentions, forget for a moment the substance of it. People react to an emotional vibe and Biden, after carefully setting moderate expectations during the week, came and delivered a State of the Union address that played as a folksy stump speech. Uncle Joe delivering a working class soliloquy, it was quite effective as a rhetorical ploy. And it was, wasn't bad as a rhetorical ploy, and at least the initial reactions to his speech seemed to be positive. Beyond that, he did at least at times try to strike a bipartisan tone. He congratulated Kevin McCarthy and suggested that he looks forward to working with Republicans in a bipartisan manner, and that got a lot of applause, okay? And that that is something, it's what Trump and a lot of the Trump people seem to miss, is people are done with the hostility. They're done, they don't want this as a war. They're looking for someone, they're looking for boring, folksy, old Joe Biden, and they'll cut him some slack for being less than sharp right now or past his prime because he's able to bring down the temperature of political hostilities. And although anyone, once again, anyone who's looking under the hood, anyone who's actually putting any of his claims and what he's doing under scrutiny knows that it's all bullshit and it's mostly destructive, as we're going to get to in a moment, um, you know, stylistically and aesthetically, he's not doing a terrible job and it's stuff that is relatively effective. Um, other stuff that's not looking good from the Republican side, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a complete buffoon okay this whole trolling bs bringing a balloon to the state of the union address the, the lack of professionalism the immaturity the doing it just for internet clout just to throw some red meat to your to your most immature supporters i mean this is bullshit and it's not reflecting well okay independent voters do not like this unfortunately you know unfortunately for conservatives they did not punish the democrats as much as they should have or could have when the Democrats broke decorum during the Trump administration. But this Marjorie Taylor Greene trolling, bringing a balloon to the State of the Union address, screaming out and heckling Joe Biden BS, nobody's into it, okay? And the people that are into it don't really matter. They may live and vote in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, but it's not indicative of how independent voters, who are the majority of the voters out there, are and how they feel and what appeals to them. And there are some conservatives. There are actually a lot of conservatives that are being very critical of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and all this buffoonery right now. John Poderitz, who was writing for the conservative magazine Commentary, was very critical of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her and her hearty band of repellent maniacs provided Biden and the Democrats with visuals and sounds they can use for the next two years to rally their own troops, and that independent voters generally are sickened by bad behavior of politicians generally. He titled his piece The Goons on the Right. 
And I think that's an apt description. This goonery, it's turning people off. Nobody's on board with this. Nobody finds it amusing. Whatever, whatever Donald Trump was able to benefit from during the 2016 election cycle, during that era of politics, where people found something amusing about people blowing up the pieties and the orthodoxies of politics and being more, quote unquote, real and brash and entertaining, that's not appealing to anybody anymore. Okay, it's not winning. So they got to cut that bullshit out right now. Um, in terms about whether or not this was something new, is this the type of thing that both sides do of course nancy pelosi ripped up donald trump's state of the union speech during the state of the union and democrats heckled donald trump all the way through his state of the union addresses so don't pretend the idea that it's just one side that's doing it is completely ridiculous okay the democrats did it a ton it's just that right now both sides need need to cut it the hell out and i think everyone would be better off for it if they did okay now on to the actual substance of Joe Biden's speech and what he's doing for America and what he claims to be doing is just complete and utter bullshit top to bottom. Just comes up with absurd excuses for the problems he creates and dismisses his failures outright and is just pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. I mean, inflation, it now half his speech was claiming a victory and his accomplishments from reducing inflation. Well, the inflation was your fault in the first place, right? He blames supply chain shocks. He blames Putin. And the whole idea with Putin is, well, Joe Biden, you've stoked the flames of this confrontation between Russia and Ukraine, okay? There have been opportunities to get to the negotiating table, and the Biden administration doesn't want to. So to the extent that the, the gas prices have risen because of the hostilities with Russia, well, Joe Biden, you're partially responsible for that. Beyond that, injecting $1.8 trillion into the economy uh, uh, on the basis of COVID once COVID was generally over and once the economy had already absorbed the impact from COVID. I mean, you cut, this was like a fire. This is like an arsonist starting a fire and then taking credit for putting out some of it. Okay, that's Joe Biden taking credit for reducing inflation, which he caused in the first place. Beyond that, takes credit for ending the pandemic. Well, Joe, you claimed, you know, while you were running in 2020, that the pandemic was just there, that we were only having a pandemic because of Donald Trump's incompetence. Then you took over and 2021 was just as bad as 2020, even after we had vaccines. Okay, so Joe Biden wants an alternate history where 2021, where essentially as soon as he took office, the pandemic receded, and he gets full credit from that. And that's just not true. Okay. It's complete bullshit. And can the end of the pandemic be drawn back to anything that Joe Biden did? Not whatsoever. Ian Miller on Twitter. Joe Biden saying that he ended the pandemic is one of the most dishonest statements you'll ever hear. The pandemic ended because everyone got COVID, regardless of how many times they got vaccinated, how often they wore masks, or how many pointless restrictions politicians imposed on them. Okay. So Joe Biden, nothing you did did anything to impact the pandemic. The pandemic was just as bad when you were in charge as it was when Donald Trump was in charge. And the only reason it receded, it receded everywhere else too, okay? So you, there's no causality. There's nothing that draws back to anything that you did that helped end the pandemic. It flamed out on its own. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act, the most ridiculously Orwellian titled piece of legislation ever, called the Inflation Reduction Act, it literally does nothing to reduce inflation. Absolutely zero. It's pretty much just a tax and spend bill. And he even seems to want to admit that. I and mean, Joe Biden in his speech mentions the Inflation Reduction Act is also the most significant investment ever in climate change. What the fuck does that have to do with inflation? He's admitting the bill has nothing to do with what it claims to be about. There's nothing good about the Inflation Reduction Act, okay? Joe Biden trying to escape responsibility for inflation that he caused in a pandemic he did nothing, nothing to assist with. Okay, complete BS. Also gets on to some culture war items, says, let's also pass the Bipartisan Equality Act and ensure LGBTQ Americans, especially transgender young people, can live with dignity and safety. 
Okay, so let's just discuss this. The Equality Act essentially just removes the biological distinction between male and female and allows uh, and essentially tells any child whose mental subjective impression says that they are the opposite sex of what they biologically are, that they then need to have that affirmed one through society and society's laws or two through surgery. That's what it does. The whole idea that this is a matter of dignity is complete and utter bullshit. What this was is a complete dismissal of the biological foundation of man and woman and uh, male and female and all of society's rules, whether it's access to bathrooms, jails, and how you segment between male and female prisoners or sports and athletics, the distinction between male and female based on biology. That's all the Equality Act does. Complete BS. On taxes, Joe Biden essentially says this, that the federal deficit and the solvency issues with Social Security and Medicare are strictly a matter of us not taxing rich people and corporations enough, which is utterly, utterly ridiculous. The math does not even come close to working out, okay? First off, he creates this distinction at $400,000 a year. Okay, great. Go tax everyone who's making more than $400,000 a year, another 10%, another 15%. The tax receipts you'll get from that will maybe keep the government operating for about a week and a half, okay? The numbers don't even come close to working out. The amount of government spending through any variety of budgetary items is so far beyond anything that we even could tax our way out of. It's not even, it's not even within earshot, okay? If you're standing on the revenues and looking at the costs, you can't even see them. Okay, so the idea that we're going to be able to do this without cutting some spending is beyond ridiculous. Aside from the fact that it just seems to be him trying to demagogue and be punitive as to people who are making a lot of money and corporations who are already getting taxed quite a bit. Okay, and most of them, uh, they seem to be making use of tax loopholes, which you created in the first place to the extent that they are. And the idea that we can simply close a few of these loopholes and make up the budget deficit is pure and utter fiction. So that's essentially a summary of the State of the Union address from the Biden perspective. Uh, stylistically, aesthetically, not bad. Substantively, complete and utter nonsense. The Republicans, particularly the goons on the right, not reacting at least at the speech uh, in a way that serves their interests. But the way that the Republicans responded afterwards, actually, or at least the official representatives of the Republicans, not the goon squad, was actually pretty good. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, current uh, governor of Arkansas, the youngest female governor ever, and was former press secretary for Trump, she actually gave a very strong response. And she focused on a lot of culture war and parenting items that actually are resonating with a lot of people. As she mentions, we are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. Every day we were told we must partake in the rituals, salute their flags, and worship their false idols. That's not normal. It's crazy and it's wrong. I'm the first woman to lead my state, and Biden is the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. Can't argue with any of that right there. Um, the other guy who always responds no matter what, no matter the situation, Donald Trump. Um, some other stuff he did this week, which is completely ridiculous, including uh, alluding to or at least implying that Ron DeSantis is a child molester. And I'm sure that's going to serve him really well. Um, but at least his response to the State of the Union, he actually stuck on substance instead of just trying to be a crass bully and making fun of people, which he's not even good at anymore. Um, and he mentions... Over the past two years under Biden, millions and millions of illegal aliens from 160 different countries have stormed across our southern border. Drug cartels are now raking in billions of dollars from smuggling poison to kill our people and to kill our children. Savage killers, rapists, and violent criminals are being released from jail to continue their crime wave. Biden and the radical Democrats have wasted trillions of dollars and caused the worst inflation in a half century. Real wages are down 21 months in a row. Gas prices have soared and are now going up much higher than even before, and the typical American family is paying $2,200 in increased energy and food costs each year. That's actually all true. All of those 
Donald Trump finally made a substantive case against Joe Biden instead of just trying to be a bully and making fun of people. It was actually right on target. Okay, I think he's completely done politically, and I think his uh, uh, campaign to run for 2024 is a complete joke, and it's going to end in failure. However, there is the slight chance he goes and refocuses on actual substance instead of his nonsense. And if he can do that, who knows? Maybe he's got a shot, but that was a good response on the substance to the nonsense that Joe Biden claimed. So will the State of the Union speech matter? Probably not. Like I said, not a ton of people pay attention. Um, it's more style than substance, but I do think it tells a lot about where we are politically in this country right now and in kind of teeing up what the battle will be over the next two years. And election cycle is going to heat up pretty soon. I mean, we're already in you know, February of the year before the election. By June, July, you're going to start hearing stuff, and we're, we're pretty much going to be in the election cycle for 2024. So it should be interesting to monitor over the coming months. More of the prevailing narrative after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Two topics that come up quite often on this podcast are cancel culture and identity politics, but really these terms are limiting because the phenomenon they describe are really the values, norms, customs, and standards of our society, right? Um, over the last couple of weeks, a few things have popped up in these two categories that I think are worth discussing, particularly cancel culture. A bunch of names in the cancel culture world popped up the last week or so. Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle... Army Hammer and Salman Rushdie, the original cancel culture case from 30 years ago, and an instructive case as uh, he was a pariah and chased uh, for 30 years. And while a lot of people let their guard down about the potential consequences of the attempted cancellation against Salman Rushdie, after 30 years, he got attacked and stabbed in the eye and lost an eye. Um, and I think really drove home a lot of points about cancel culture and its potential consequences, even though most of those that type of physical uh, violence is not really a palpable concern for the Louis. C.K.'s and Chappelle's of the world. Okay, so what happened with Louis C.K. and Chappelle, the comedians? Uh, Louis C.K. definitely had been canceled temp temporarily, but he's come back and he sold out Madison Square Garden the other day, uh, went on Joe Rogan, and from the outsider's perspective, a lot of people could look at this and say, okay, well, Louis C.K. is back, but if he is, why is he back? And is the fact that he's back indicative or instructive about what happens with cancel culture um, or what cancel culture, quote unquote, is? Um, tangentially, Dave Chappelle. Chappelle won a Grammy for his comedy special with Netflix, which was uh, uh, somewhat controversial at the time, but extremely popular. And I think that one speaks a little bit more to what society's tastes are and that really most people um, are going, most people like Chappelle. Most people think what he says is funny and the comedic value outweighs anything that might be offensive about some people in certain categories. Um, and he, you know, he, he dealt, he was never really canceled. I mean, there was a very half-hearted attempt. It was almost like a kick in the shins trying to be uh, an attempt at murder. Louis C.K., on the other hand, he was out of the public eye. I mean, he was canceled. He was one of the incidents and he was one of the prime characters of the initial wave of cancel culture 
right after the whole Harvey Weinstein affair. Uh, so the idea that he had no repercussions, that his life, his career, his finances, everything that, you know, essentially his entire life, because everything springs from those things, the fact, the idea that he did not suffer consequences or repercussions, or there was not an attempt at canceling Louis C.K., um, is just completely ridiculous. Uh, so he came back, you know, over the last couple of years, he's released a couple specials straight uh, straight to the consumer, and they've done pretty well. But this was really his, his true coming out back into the public eye with selling out Madison Square Garden. It, that would seem to be an indicator that society generally has forgiven him and he can start to enter polite society again. Um, Marissa Cabas, a, uh, a correspondent for MSNBC, says, Louis C.K. played Madison Square Garden last night. Cancel culture is not real. People really believe this. People really want to make this argument and assert this claim that if you attempt to cancel someone or someone is temporarily canceled or there's significant consequences as a result of a cancellation attempt, if that person then does re-enter re society and then comes back whatsoever, that means cancel culture is not real. That is a ridiculous conceit right off the bat, but we need to address it because essentially the entirety of the left-leaning left media seems to support this notion, right? That the fact that someone may come back from a cancellation, uh, that not all cancellations succeed in perpetuity, means that cancel culture is not real. A couple Twitter comments that commented on the ridiculousness of this conceit. Uh, one, notice how they always cite rich people as examples of cancel, cancel culture supposedly not being real, but never the average Joe off the street who loses their job and has their entire life destroyed because of vengeful online mobs. Very good point. Only the highly resourced are able to survive a cancellation attempt. Only if you've already got an established fan base and uh, essentially independent wealth. You know That's why people like Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais and some of the more established comedians are the ones who challenge cancel culture more brazenly because the younger ones don't have enough money yet. Andrew Schultz is pretty pretty much the only one. There's only one comedian who's been on the rise over the last five to seven years who's been, you know, essentially uh, poked the bear on cancel culture and survived and actually ascended and attained some sort of financial wherewithal during that period. The other ones were all already rich, okay? So when you claim that cancel culture is not real just because a guy like uh, Louis C.K. may come back from it, I mean, you're ignoring a major factor in terms of financial wherewithal and independent wealth right there. Another one, I can't stand Louis C.K., but the sentiment is so weird coming from people who obviously wanted his career to be permanently ruined. It's like when someone tries to shoot you in the head and misses and then says, what's the problem? I didn't even hit you. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good analogy. Another one right there was not because not every shark attack ends up in a death. It means that sharks aren't aren't dangerous. I mean, this is once again a ridiculous claim, but lots of people seem to believe it. Marissa Cabas's tweet got a lot of love and a lot of likes. Um, so there is a commentator I, I mentioned sometimes named Freddie DeBoer, and I think he's just a great, he's incredibly articulate in describing the, the nonsense around our current culture. And I think part of the reason why is that he's super left wing, but super anti-cancel culture. Okay. So he's a hardcore economic leftist, um, socially probably far more liberal than I am, but he's very much against authoritarianism in any way, shape or form. And he sees cancel culture and a lot of this, this modern, you know, throwing around, uh, throwing weight around and trying to bring consequence upon people. He doesn't like that. Okay. It, it smacks of just everybody. And one time, one piece that he wrote was called planet cops and that the cancel culture era was everybody's a cultural cop of some sort. So, you know, he took on, uh, the Cobbus 
claim that cancel culture is not real um, and put together a very good piece. I highly recommend that people read it and subscribe to Freddie's Substack. Um, so first he tried to define cancel culture. He says, I think, uh, I think it's a culture where social norms are enforced with repeated and vociferous public shaming. He says that's the most useful way to define the term. I'd add one more element to that, and I'd say contaminating an individual institutionally with guilt by association, right? Because it's not just the public shaming, right? Because that's one-to-one. You're also making it so that anybody, any institution or corporation uh, uh, that associates with this person uh, is it's now so toxic that they need to make some public statement or drop them and you're essentially toxifying a human being for any association with them and you know while uh, an individual might feel uh, more insulated to go and defend a friend or do a business deal with Louis CK or be friends with them a company an institution no that the, the whole idea cancel culture when it succeeds, toxifies a person for anything institutionally. Um, And then obviously acknowledging that repercussions are a thing. The fact that somebody has endured or recovered from the repercussions of public shaming does not mean that there are no repercussions or that those repercussions are fair, right? Louis C.K. lost a lot of money, was out of the public eye for a number of years. I mean, the fact that the idea that that the attempt to cancel him had no consequences or repercussions is just ridiculous. Um, then in a, a more interesting take on kind of the, uh, the hypocrisy of the, oh, cancel culture doesn't exist, uh, assertions is that the claim that cancel culture doesn't exist has an implied suggestion that the person making that claim thinks it should, right? And here's how DeBoer put it. The immediate question for someone who expresses this point of view should be, uh, so you prefer cancel culture exists? Yes, because if it did, by their own contention, Louis C.K. would not be playing Madison Square Garden, nor would other publicly shamed individuals escape the consequences. And once you've established that the argument suggests that cancel culture would be a good thing, we're free to debate it as a preferred state of affairs, if not a current reality, at which point the whole cancel culture doesn't exist complaint becomes moot. By wishing for it, you're making it arguable. I think that's a great point. Obviously, the people that are dismissing the notions of cancel culture clearly are unhappy with it. They want Louis C.K. to be canceled. They want cancel culture to exist. They want these people to be shunned and uh, pariahs in perpetuity. Okay, That's clearly the implication of why they're making a criticism of this in the first place. I think that's very interesting. Uh, So... So, as I mentioned, there seemed to be a strange parade of cancel culture incidents popping back up in the public eye, and another one recently was Army Hammer. Army Hammer, bit of a blue blood, old money, good-looking guy, portrayed good-looking old money, uh, uh, disliked character in the social network, which was kind of, you know, almost art imitating life with that being his breakout role, became a pretty successful actor. And then about two years ago, after a lot of the cancel culture stuff and Me Too stuff had actually died down a little bit, um, and he got swept into it with a lot of revelations of him having some strange, weird sexual tastes and kinks um, about, you know, just aggressive chats about cannibalism fantasies, master-slave roles, role play, sadomasochism, and things of that nature, and a lot of the women, you know, one, just the the kind of visceral, uh, the visceral exposure to seeing some of the text messages that he sent women expressing these sexual tastes really turned a lot of people off, and then that kind of spiraled into, wait a second, he pressured these girls into playing out some of these fantasies, and even some claims of rape, and he was, and he was canceled. I mean, he was shunned publicly, dropped from Hollywood, rejecting from all his roles. He was a pariah in Hollywood, lost his house, went in essentially went into hiding for a couple years then he came back this week with his first interview since going into hiding essentially and what did that entail 
Uh, he mentioned that, yes, he knows that his sexual tastes were strange and he, he doesn't feel good about them and says that a lot of it traces back to his molestation by a priest at age 13. Obviously, we ha we must take him at his word. It's hard to verify that, to, to validate it or invalidate it. But hey, if he was molested as a child, you could imagine having some some strange sexual preferences. So you've got that. And then beyond that, this is the question of, of once again, all these weird sexual preferences of his, okay, they, they were strange preferences, but did the girls that are accusing him of wrongdoing, did they consensually participate in exploring these tastes with him? So you've got some super strange stuff. Uh, his ex-girlfriend, Paige Lorenz, says he, uh, he carved a letter A near her vagina with a knife, licked the wound, pr proposed consuming her, and told her that he wanted to eat one of her ribs. Super weird stuff, and that does suggest, and she suggested that that was done somewhat against her will. Um, but on the other hand, she didn't say that she didn't consent to it. She didn't say that he he held her down and carved her with a knife. I mean, the, the implication here is that she was on board or did not object to it or was consensually consented to it at the time. Um, aside from that, there was an interview right after some of the initial revelations, or sorry, there was an interview with Paige Lorenz right after she broke up with Army Hammer where she speaks glowingly of him. Okay, a little weird, and I'm sorry if anyone wants to say, well, that doesn't mean necessarily that that um, malfeasance and misconduct didn't occur during the relationship. Well, you, if you're trying to ascertain truth, and if you're trying to suggest claims, significant claims to scrutiny, you have to look for consistency. Okay, so the, these are things that matter in this analysis. Beyond that, and the one that really nailed, you know, the nailed the door shut on Hammer was that one of his ex-girlfriends accused him of rape and said that he uh, essentially tied her up and beat her for four hours and raped her. Um, his his response and contention was this was another role play and she completely consented to it and it in fact was her idea in the first place and okay in in running the analysis there well this would seem to be in alignment with his other strange sexual tastes and preferences um this woman formerly worked at a sex club. Uh, she initially reached out to him via DM. That's how they met initially. And this woman, I believe her name's like Effie Angelova, apparently, and once again, right after some of the initial cannibal text messages came came out and there was a, a, a bit of controversy about Hammer, I mean, she went to Instagram and she admitted, she specifically said, one, th that everything was consensual, that he's an amazing father and that he's not dangerous and she needs no legal representation. Then subsequently, she came out and said that this was rape, uh, this was non-consensual and that he beat her okay so that obviously is incredible that and very much indicts her claims but getting swept up in the controversy in the claims and just the the visceral disgust at what army hammer had engaged in people put currency and credence in what she said and essentially you know more essentially believed her and considered army hammer uh, uh you know someone who was credibly accused of rape um, so where, where does that leave us now? You know, he's trying to come back into the public eye and, and trying to rehabilitate his image. He does seem very contrite. He's apologizing even, you know, he still claims that everything was consensual, but he understands that some of these things were still kind of dark and depraved and there might have been a power dynamic at play. Um, but you know, I think society needs to wrestle with whether or not this is someone that should be a pariah forever. That it that do we have to subject the claims the the claims of non consensual behavior or claims of rape to more scrutiny and to determine whether or not this is a guy who should be shunned from society forever, right? Um, and looking back on that, I'll even kind of you know I'm generally someone who doesn't put much credence in the claims that well something was consensual, um, but there was a power dynamic at play and thus it made it non consensual. I'm sorry, every minute of the day, every hour, every experience uh, has the potential of some sort of power dynamic. Unless there's a very explicit black 
blackmail or threat, you're an adult, okay? If someone might be pressuring you a little bit into something uh, or somebody might simply be more powerful than you, if you do not express that you not do not want to do something, if you consent to something, I'm sorry, you're an adult, okay? You need to be held up to an adult standards and you have personal agency. Um, however, if we were to look at the other side of that argument, uh, uh, Dan Savage, who I guess is considered a sex columnist or a relationship columnist, but more generally a pundit, um, he kind of describes the phenomenon of consent with regret that just getting consent, getting a yes, and ticking that box isn't enough as someone might consent to your kinks, not because they're appealing to them, but because they're attracted to power and fame. If you discard them in two months and that was your plan all, oh, and that was your plan all and that was your plan all along, they'll look back on that sexual activity that they consented to and feel very violated, genuinely violated, and even worse, they may feel complicit in their own violation because they said yes. And that's an interesting one. That's a little tougher because the violation, sure, if you convince someone to participate in something that you get the vibe they're not fully on board with, but they somewhat reluctantly do and they're consenting and they don't object to it and they do say yes, um, and then you uh, later mistreat them, I mean, overall, you, can, you could package those circumstances and consider that some sort of violation. Definitely not anything, I'm sorry, in terms of criminal liability, absolutely not, okay? In the moment, the explicit communication of consent or non-consent, that needs to be what criminal liability turns on. But in terms of you know our social, uh, our social norms and cultural norms and whether or not someone has engaged in behavior that needs some sort of punishment or shaming, okay, I see, I see that one a little bit more um, in terms of mistreating people and, and you know emotionally abusing them and violating them in that manner. So I'll, I'll give them a point there. Um, and Army Hammer, you know, once again, he seems to even be owning up to that. He says, "I'm here to make, uh, I'm here to own my mistakes." take accountability for the fact that I was an asshole, I was selfish, that I used people to make me feel better, and when I was done, I moved on. And I treated people more poorly than they should have been treated. So, fair enough. I think he owns up to that. Now, that will be an interesting, this will be an interesting exercise. Uh, is the rehabilitation for Army Hammer? Um, going back to the DeBoer piece, what he mentions is that he thinks our culture is too retributive, is that he believes that a culture of rehabilitation and salvation is a better and healthier one. He also says that, you know, his theory is that cancel culture is not as powerful and you're getting people like Louis C.K. to come back and you're getting cancel cancellation attempts like that on Chappelle are failing because people are just tired of it. I mean, that's DeBoer's thesis. The way he describes it is, yes, our culture appears to have gotten a little less punitive. I can't say that I see this as a sign of philosophical or explicitly moral shift, however. I suspect that it's simply a facet of public exhaustion with the constant demand to be outraged and the inevitable diminishing returns of this sort of approach. So very interesting uh, to posit, hey, it does seem like some of the reins of cancel culture have loosened up a little bit and interesting to explore why. Is it backlash? Are we, as as DeBoer mentioned, simply tired of it? Um, are, is there a moral recalibration when we do realize we should be less punitive and more rehabilitative? Uh, perhaps that's the case. This is something definitely to be monitoring as it will certainly come up more often. More in a minute right after these words. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, tying this all together back to Sam and Rushdie. And so he's been living in France for a while, and he had a really interesting piece in The Atlantic kind of exploring wokeism and ident uh, identitarianism and identity politics in the contrast between how the French are approaching it in the United States. And it's kind of odd because France was always more liberal than the U.S., right? It was always that, you know, more kind of snobby intellectuals, uh, more economically, you know, kind of socialism light. The workers are always striking there. Um, and then just more welcoming of immigrants 
for quite some time now, although that's taken a bit of a, uh, there's been a bit of a backlash over the last 10, 15 years, but they believed it was kind of their, their national obligation and impetus to take in uh, it, and became more, one of the more racially diverse Western European countries early on. Um, but they're rejecting wokeness. They're rejecting wokeness very aggressively. And Chatterton Williams' piece uh, is titled, The French are in a panic over le wokeism, as he puts in quotes, kind of pithy. Uh, and he mentions the French rejection of this identitarianism stuff, this wokeism, and what it reveals about America's embrace of it. And he leads off the piece, or at least how he describes the piece as, I remain convinced that an, uh, that an authentically colorblind society, one that recognizes histories of differences but refuses to fetishize them or reproduce them, is the destination we must aim for. That's a pretty noble, admirable sentiment, don't you think? That's a healthy sentiment, right? That would seem to be, if everyone could buy into that, that would make for the most healthy results in society as opposed to, you know, stuff that might uh, uh, present, you know, certain benefits to certain groups, but not to the but not to the greatest benefit to the whole or might, you know, carry some short-term benefits, but probably not work in the long run. That's a pretty noble sentiment, like to believe so. Okay, so how he, uh, how he describes this and kind of gets to that conclusion in the piece um, and mentioning that for France, and one of the reasons they're rejecting a lot of this woke stuff is because they're so deeply entrenched in being French, right? They have a heritage of nationalism and what's called universalism. Uh, here's how he describes it. The French have long prided themselves on having a system of government that doesn't recognize racial or ethnic designations. The idea is to uphold a universal vision of what it means to be French, independent of race, ethnicity, and religion. America seemed to have borrowed from that quite a bit, right? Or at least what, you know, our founding ideals or the ideals that we tried to follow were. And of course, we would, you know, deviate from those or fall short of them at some point. But th that's the goal, right? Those are the guided, much like, you know, just just because you don't reduce uh, homicide and theft to zero doesn't mean that you don't, you know, aim to have no crime. You don't say that just because we weren't able to drive murder to zero doesn't mean that we shouldn't aim to have no murder, right? You got, you got your intentions, you've got your goals, and then you've got reality. And so what Chatterton, most of the piece from Chatterton Williams, what it explores is a panel where a number of, you know, French intellectuals and politicians, some of which are, are pretty liberal, who are definitely, you know, economically on many other social issues would be considered, you know, Died in the wool Democrats or liberals by United States standards are still rejecting wokeism and identity politics and identitarianism. And they uh, held a panel with one of the few um, African or I guess French uh, French black scholars or, or black French citizens that was did, did adopt you know more support or was more supportive of wokeness and identity politics and saying that you know you need to be listening to you need to be listening and not objecting at all to the complaints and the grievances of the uh, black citizens and residents of France because you don't share their lived experience um, and that's one of the bases for identity politics is lived experience that that the values and principles of the dominant ethnic groups don't necessarily matter and you can't, you know, and don't really have any validity because if there's oppressed groups who have different values um, or, or don't experience those same values the same way, well, you have to agree with their lived experience. And that's a lot of circular reasoning, right? Because it makes things non-falsifiable. It means that, by, you know, that you cannot object, there's no objective reality. You cannot object to something based on logic or reason or experience because one person is just going to say, well, this is my experience and and you can't do anything to contradict that. Um, and as one of the anti-woke uh, panelists mentioned that that's a bit of a domination, is that relying on lived experience as the basis for identitarianism means that you know it's non-fossil, you, you can't argue against it. 
that just because you say, oh, uh, this was my lived experience and this is the lived experience of all the immigrants in France and all the non-Caucasian uh, uh, residents of France, that you cannot deny that. So aside from the fact that not all of the non-white residents of France have the same experiences and believe the same things and are in support of the same things. I mean, so right off the bat, it, it's kind of ridiculous to just rely on that and just put things up as a monolith of uh, native born or historically Gaelic uh, white French citizens versus everyone of color in France. I mean, that uh, right off the bat is absurd. And it's just, it, it's, it's, it's a betrayal of logic because it says that you can't oppose anything. It says that you can't, br you can bring no counter argument. But then some of the other identitarianism claims essentially that the cherished ideals of the West in the United States, like individualism, freedom of speech, the Protestant work ethic, things like that, are in fact obstacles to equity, illusions spun by those who have power in order to keep it and hold the marginalized in place. And that's also completely faulty reasoning because it's saying... If there is a dominant ethnicity in this country, or if there is an equality in this country, and the dominant culture is in favor of these values, then that automatically negates or contaminates those values, right? It says, as a matter, you're, you're, it's almost a causation correlation type of thing, that if this nation holds these values to be true or claims to hold these values, yet there's things that go wrong in these na this nation, that means those value that impeaches those values, okay? So just the fact that there's a lot of economic, uh, uh, economic inequality, for instance, in the United States, that somehow impeaches the notion of freedom of speech. But yet, the wokes believe this. The identitarianists believe this. And they said, essentially, anything having to do with the society, if there is inequality, or if you could define on some, uh, uh, define based on some criteria, uh, uh, dominant groups and oppressed groups means that all these values just go right off the, out the window, that none of them have any validity. This is actually what they believe. And here's the thing is Chatterton Williams, I mean, he's not a super right-wing guy, and he is re actually relatively receptive to a couple of the arguments from the, the, you know, from the woke scholar on the panel and believes that she might have been treated a little unfairly on it. And he's actually fairly sympathetic to her, even though he generally disagrees with, uh, with a, you know, a number of her conclusions. And he's pretty poised throughout this, uh, this entire piece, but he kind of wraps it up in, you know, in, in, in an explanation of why he thinks at the end of the day, I Identitarianism is the wrong way to go, and universalism is the way to go. And he mentions, Many in the French mainstream are correct to note that wokeness is philosophically incoherent, trying to end racism by elevating race, for instance, and if taken far enough, dangerous. The politics of identity that undergirds the obsession with social justice obliterates individuality. Wokeism has not gone well in America. Cancel culture is quite, is quite real in the U.S., and its effects have been toxic to debate and in many cases to institutional decision-making. Resistance to wokeism's more ambitious design like the elimination of merit-based screening at elite public schools, the defunding or even abolition of the police, has been widespread and, to many progressive surprise, ethnically diverse. I remain convinced that an authentically colorblind society, one that recognizes histories of difference but refuses to fetishize or reproduce them, is the destination we, much we must aim for. Either we achieve universalism or we destroy ourselves as a consequence of our mutual resentment and suspicion. Once again, what a seemingly poised, coherent, and thoughtful explanation just, you know, that communicates a number of admirable, noble principles that you can, you know, would want to rest a society on. The reaction from many left-wing commentators to that was completely unhinged. There's one guy, uh, he goes by Zito. He's kind of one of these guys who straddles sports commentary and pop culture commentary and likes to chime in on, uh, chime in on these issues and very, is very much... Uh, 
and can very much be described as woke as an identitarianist, uh, his reaction to that piece that I just described and read you some passages from, from Thomas Chatterton Williams, this is his response. This is funny because Thomas Chatterton Williams is so insultingly stupid and has the audacity here to present the nation of France as unified in this argument, as if there's not a history past and present of black French intellectuals and philosophers that are easily accessible. He then claims that, hey, this, this is the type of piece is why racists love Thomas Chatterton Williams and then tells him on Twitter, you will always be a fucking loser. This really shows the true colors of woke, okay? Because this is how they react. This is how they react to incredibly poised, thoughtful, uh, this is how they react to quite poised and thoughtful commentary on how we think that a colorblind society is still should be the guiding pr principle of society and will lead to the best outcomes even if it has imperfections, okay? Imagine being a person who reacts like that Zito guy just did to Thomas Chatterton Williams' piece and believing you have the moral high ground, yet they do. This is, this is essentially the moral and ethical battle that we have in America right now. These vicious people who will not hesitate to say the nastiest things about people if they dare appear, appeal to universalism, if they dare appeal to more traditional American principles like free speech and colorblindness, uh, just for the fact that some of, sometimes they have not been upheld and we have not reached those lofty principles. And so what does that lead to? It leads to what we've seen from the media and from the public reaction on a few other issues recently. Andrew Sullivan, also always a great commentator, noticed a couple stories where this identitarianist view of society bumps up against reality. His piece from last week, When the Media Narratives Meet Reality, essentially attempts by the media to jam every story into a rubric of white supremacy, quote unquote. So you got three stories. You have two mass killings of Asian Americans within two days in California by one Asian American and a Chinese national and then you have the tyree nichols incident in memphis where five black police officers beat a black man to death while trying to apprehend him and the desire the the insatiable thirst to draw to jam this situation into some rubric of white supremacy or the typical prism of identity politics and identitarianism i mean is beyond belief it's truly demented because look what's going on here and look how the media reacts if the facts don't fit the narrative you move on quickly to a story that will so with the asian american massacres after some initial excitement the msn lost interest as soon as a white man could not be blamed but look at this stuff an asian american wellness reporter for usa today wrote so yes this time the tragic shootings might not have been out of racism but that doesn't negate the constant harassment violence and hatred we battle on a daily basis so when an incident has nothing to do with racism why do you then make the story about racism how do you always have to drag the narrative there no matter what how can you not just address a story uh, within the confines of what actually occurred in the issues relevant to that incident it's a pathological need to make everything about racial hostility and continually divide us and these people are doing it strictly because they can get some sort of victim uh, victim currency socially because their arguments will be taken more seriously and they get to elevate themselves through uh through claims of victimhood or oppression okay and it's fucking pathological of course, one of everybody's favorite race hustlers, Jamel Hill for The Atlantic, and it's, God, I, you know, it's crazy to believe that, Jam that The Atlantic publishes both Jamel Hill and Thomas Chatterton Williams, but hey, ideological diversity, I guess. Uh, Jamel Hill, the murderous cops were non-white people carrying water for whiteness. Unbelievable. 
they somehow find a way to do this with every story and strictly because it serves their interest. This is not noble. It's not virtuous. It's not admirable. These people are, in fact, the bad people. They're not the good guys. They believe they want to give the impression that they are the proponents of justice and fairness and empathy and compassion. They are nothing of the sort. They're complete and utter frauds. As Sullivan explains some of this nonsense, um, under the precepts of critical race theory, the black officers didn't actually kill anyone. Whiteness did, by infesting their brains and their souls like the fungally challenged people in Last of Us. CRT denies human agency to members of minorities, strips them of choice, renders them inert as individuals. They are only ever instruments of the system. I think that's really well put. It strips any non-white person of agency, choice, and renders them inert as individuals. And a lot of the, a lot of people, a lot of so-called people of color reject this because they don't want to be in Infantilized. They don't want to be treated like children. They want to have agency. They want to be treated like adults. Okay, and this is why you see not everybody piles on to this woke stuff. Only some of the loudest voices, unfortunately, in the media. And so, as Sullivan concludes, the reality is so much more interesting than the dogma the MSN now brings to almost every story, almost every time. You don't have to ignore racism's enduring effect in society, but you can see the world in a lens other than the neo-Marxist vision of permanent zero-sum group warfare in which some groups are always the oppressor and some the oppressed. Amen.